Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn with Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content out on the internet. The best place to do that is to follow me on Twitter at, at @focusedcompound. Uh, you can go to focuscompound.com uh, to get access to investment write-ups from Jeff going all the way back to 2005. And of course, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, uh, you can reach out to me at focuscompounding.com, uh, whether that's for all of your capital or a portion of your capital. Uh, if you want to learn more about that, you can reach out to me again, Andrew at focusedcompounding.com. So Jeff, how's it going today? Today's May 17th. We are recording this. Um, how's everything going on your end? Good. Good. Glad to hear that. Glad to hear that. So uh, May 17th, we haven't hit on uh, the market in quite some time. So I thought we could just breeze through it where we are currently uh, in the world. The S&P 500 is up 7% year to date. Uh, 10-year yield, 3.55%. Uh, crude oil, 71 bucks. A barrel and natural gas, $2 and 33 cents. Uh, haven't talked too much about inflation recently, so I thought it'd be fun to go over. Uh, the CPI index rose 0.4% last month, uh, which was pushed higher by rising shelter, uh, used vehicle and gas prices. Uh, the 4.9% uh, inflation rate was in line with Wall Street expectations. Uh, Fed funds is about five and a quarter or is at five and a quarter. So now the Fed fund rate, if you're looking at the all items, inflation rate is higher and unemployment uh, is still inching lower. So the two things that the Fed controls, inflation and the unemployment rate, 3.4% um, in April. And that was down a little bit. And where we currently sit today, the Schiller PE, which is the PE that... Jeff looks at, uh, just to get an overall picture of the market, still at 28 to 29 times. Uh, the median Schiller PE is about 15.92 times, called 16, and we're at uh, about 29 times in the market. So I just wanted to quickly uh, bring that up, Jeff, to see what your thoughts are on what's going on in, in the market and the economy, overall valuations. Um, we've spoken about historically how Inflation won't come down unless the Fed funds is above that inflation rate. And we're finally at that point. Um, so what are your general thoughts on uh, where we are in the economy and in the market? Yeah, the Schiller P is high. Um, and the inflation rate has come down from earlier in the year, in the past year or so. Um You know, a lot of the items that they talked about are more cyclical items. There hasn't been as big a change overall um, in many of the stickier items or the median item or something. And, and so it was never as bad as it looked, nor is it uh, has gotten as good as it is now. Um, by most measures of that stuff, we're at about the same levels we were at the beginning of 2022, um, which is around here, around what the CPI says, a little lower maybe. Um, four, four and a half percent. 
but uh you know the steep decline that you've seen is mostly from items that you know so, so like here when you're seeing in the last six months or something that's mostly from items that are not really um all that uh sticky all that you know things that you wouldn't worry as much about um and you can see the food and energy you know when you take out food and energy on that graph um that the number is much flatter right so you can see you know if you look on the graph you can see that for a longer period of time that has been more stable it never rose as high but also it's it really hasn't come down much at all and and that's mostly what it is i'm not sure you know once you put in statistical adjustments for things and everything whether we've had meaningfully different inflation from the beginning of january 22 to today it seems pretty similar month to month do you think we're in a systemically higher inflationary environment i mean for you know going forward i mean do you expect there to be persistently higher inflation call it three four percent um i don't know how important it is in terms of what inflation we get uh factors that aren't the fed right because in theory the fed is able to uh, change rates to whatever level they need to to adjust for the fact that that's how they can control inflation, right? So if fiscal policy is very loose, if there's not enough labor or whatever, you could say, okay, well, they can adjust for that by having higher rates, right? The inflation that you get is mostly the result then of them being unwilling to do that for some reason. So I think it's very, very hard to predict. Even if you can predict that there would be forces that would cause inflation, you can't really predict that the Fed wouldn't be willing to just have very high rates. Um, on the other hand, if you had forces that brought inflation down, still you could have plenty of inflation because the Fed could be even looser than that, right? So it, it's a real problem in predicting what inflation would be. Um, I think that right now the, the issue is more like how long-term it seems to be to people. Obviously, labor is very, very tight, and you know there hasn't yet been a big change in like um, fiscal policy towards uh, a reaction, a concern about the levels of inflation that we've seen. And so, without an adjustment in that, yeah, it could be different. It could look like a different time period. Um, you know, for us to actually have repeated bouts of inflation, would probably have to be like the '70s, where the Fed would say because of the banking crisis or because of a recession. Um, be willing to cut rates, even though inflation wasn't low. That wasn't even at their target, right? And so if the same thing happened here, where inflation's at 4% and they cut rates, then that's where you could have recurring bouts of inflation. Because then the market starts to price in that the Fed won't really leave rates as high as they say for as long as they say it comes down. So, you know, it, it would end up taking more and more rate increases. Um, so... The the other thing is, I think, and there was a paper written about this, but I definitely think this is true anyway, uh, just by looking at things. The levels of um, rates that would be required to bring inflation down now must be much, much higher than they were in 1970. So the Fed has already brought housing down a lot. Um, car prices, housing activity car prices have been strong but it's not like car activity has been high so um they've affected many of the things that they can affect they brought down financial markets in both stocks and bonds um there's not much that they can do on a lot of other things so i think that more of the economy is in things that are less sensitive to the fed and we that that's probably true um so we would expect that it's harder to bring down those things 
right? Because you can only bring housing down so low. You can only bring down things that are related to that so low. And they've done a lot of that. Um, there's even some signs that some of that stuff is picking up again, even with them not lowering rates at all, which is a concern for them. So um, some of the stuff coming down is stuff that they have no control over, right? So like shelter, uh, shelter in terms of actual rent, as opposed to houses, they have no control over. Um, it, it won't have much relationship at all. It's just a supply and demand issue. So if they built a lot of apartment buildings, it'll come down when that supply comes on. If you don't build enough apartment buildings, it won't come on. It has nothing to do with the Fed, right? Fed has very little to do you know, with anything that has to do with um, energy stuff. Can't really control that. So it, it's just... Uh, it's possible that the rates would have to be higher. I mean, so far it's proven true. They've raised rates a lot and had no effect on unemployment. So, so far it's proving true that that rate increases are a lot less effective than they were 50 years ago in slowing the economy. Why do you think that is? Do you think it's globalization? Do you think it's technology? Do you think it's uh, the cost to produce certain things is, is less than what it was perhaps in you know 1970? I mean, why do you think that is? If you were to sort of uh, reverse engineer that. I think services are more important than goods. Mm -hmm. That's also possibly part of the issue is that there's been a continuous shift from goods to services. So the Fed may, um, they can't adjust for that fact in any of these models and stuff really. So that's another potential problem. Like right now people may be buying fewer Pelotons and going more to Disney World and stuff and that affects the way that they would expect things to behave. I think that both could mislead i mean i think it could be misleading in all sorts of ways i think all the data since covid um could be adjusted in different ways later um because there's been such a shift mix in terms of uh things like services versus goods so we talk about that all the time like you can be strong for airlines and and hotels and restaurants and movie theaters and things like that in the future and simultaneously very weak on all sorts of goods things um, so that shift is an issue. Then there's other things. We talked about this before. I think there's very strong evidence that inflation has become more persistent and stable um, over a long period of time. But I don't agree that it is any reason why it's lower than normal before COVID. So the Fed thought that inflation was more stable and low, sticky and low. Um, I think the only evidence is that it's more sticky for the last 30, for, for basically since the Internet. Um and, you know, uh, that's a problem if inflation gets high and you don't bring it down immediately. Um, so that's an issue that you could have to deal with. Um, the, the issue now is that people, the, the theory is that people aren't, uh, employers aren't firing people, even though they might be worried about things. So normally, like, um, profits are a good indicator of the economic cycle. Basically, all you have to do is cause companies to report lower profits, and then they'll fire people. So if you want to raise unemployment, all you have to really do is decrease profits. Um, it doesn't have a lot to do with like their confidence and all sorts of things about the future. As long as their profits come down, they'll fire people. If their profits rise, they'll, they'll start to hire them again. Um, profits have come down, and yet unemployment hasn't gone up yet. So it could just lag. But So that's the mm -hmm. idea where people talk about hoarding labor and all of that. Obviously, they're scared because there was a shortage of labor for several years mm -hmm. in some industries. And so they'd rather have too much labor than too little for a while. Um, so 
you know, it's just like anything else. They may also hoard inventory now a little bit in some things, whereas they operate very lean with that. So they may just operate less lean with, with labor and everything. But um, I just think it's possible that rates might have the, the, there's a difference between, I don't think that rates work the same way in all economies because I think rates only transmit through certain channels and that's much more limited than people think. So there could mm -hmm. definitely be economies and the United States might be one where it would be very hard to actually move on employment just using interest rates. Is there a case to be made that there could be a softish landing where inflation will just continue to trickle lower, unemployment will stay about the same? I mean, take the fact that the Fed's interest rate hikes have caused bank runs and problems with banks and stuff like that, but mm -hmm. take that out of it. Is there a case to be made with time that unemployment could still be stubbornly tight and inflation will just roll off over time? Yeah, it might be. I, I don't know. Um, certainly, inflation can rise and fall a lot without a major problem. Um, happens in many different economies. All, all that really has to happen is that people have to believe that it's temporary. So if people believe that it's a temporary issue, it, it's not a big deal. Uh, they talk a lot about shocks and, you know, that there was some shock and that caused things. But that that doesn't really make sense because if we look historically, even outside the United States to economies many, many years ago, shocks don't continue to lead to high inflation rates in the future. They can be reversed pretty quickly. And there's entire centuries in which economies don't average any real inflation or deflation, even though there's some pretty big shocks in the middle. Um, so you can demobilize after World War II, start paying down the debt and stuff, and that people are very convinced that that's what you're doing and they're not worried about it. But then later, in that case, 25 years later or so, um, they become convinced that you have no intention of paying down the debt, that, you know, there's just different issues. There's demographic issues too and stuff like that. But um, that's the issue facing them now. And I think they talk about that sometimes. And, um, you know, they're, they're, that's what they need to avoid. I don't think that there's some huge worry that inflation will average 4 to 5% over the next couple of years and then 2% thereafter. That would be a very good outcome if they got that. Uh, the worry is that they, um, that they can't get expectations back down to levels like 2%. All right, let's jump on to uh, something more interesting. And uh, we could talk about uh, Buffett and his recent uh, purchases. So we could go over his 13F here in a second, but not sure if you saw his chef, but he uh, continued to buy more Occidental uh, Petroleum in the open market, Oxy. We've spoken a lot about this from prices ranging from $56.79 to $58.46. He bought an additional 2,165,000 shares. So thought that was interesting. He continues to buy Occidental. He did say that at the Berkshire meeting, which we went over last week, that they don't plan to uh, uh, acquire the company, um, but that they're happy to own their shares and they may continue to buy shares in the open market. They may or may not. Well, he's continuing to do that. Uh, 13F uh, from Q1 is out from uh, Berkshire Hathaway. And you could see that um, they made some changes. Uh, have you had a chance to look at this at all, Jeff? anything that stood out to you um i i 
there's not a lot that stood out to me. Um, they made some, there's a very small change um, that I don't even know who does those when they buy a million dollars worth of something, but they, they bought two yeah. new things. I noticed they are very small. Um, they sold some Chevron and bought some Occidental at the same time. Right. Yep. Um, otherwise there wasn't a lot standing out to me that wasn't just repeating the same things, but we can go over the different changes if you want. Um, yeah. Yeah. Let's do it. So they added to yeah. the Apple stake. Somebody added to the Apple stake. Uh, 2.28%, unless is that maybe, uh, I don't know, a very, very small portion. Uh, the big ones that stood out, I mean, add a little bit to Bank of America. The big ones, like you said, reduced Chevron uh, about 19% added to Occidental. We get the form force. So we've uh, been able to follow that in real time. Uh, reduced Activision 6.22% uh, added to HP Inc. Uh, other big ones reduced uh, GM by 20 percent uh reduced mckesson corp which i don't know who that was i don't think that was buffett by about 20 percent um somebody bought a, a adr and then there's uh vts energy which was a spinoff yeah. from jeffries which they own so they just got that from the spinoff yeah they must have owned very little of jeffries then um yeah because it wasn't a small spinoff versus Jeffries, you know, so that's like literally nothing. So presumably they might sell that, but there's almost like 10 positions that are too small to matter. So I've always mm -hmm. wondered about that because it's not just that those are um, Ted and Todd. Ted and Todd are probably pretty concentrated with most of their positions. So for some reason they have some very small positions. Um, yeah. The other ones are basically Buffett, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, he's the one probably making the adjustments to Apple and Bank of America, um, although it could be owned in very small amounts in other parts of Berkshire. Um, and then General Motors, probably not him, but uh, the other ones that we talked about, uh, Chevron and Occidental are, and Activision is his merger arbitrage thing, and he, I'm pretty sure he's the HP. Mm -hmm. Somebody had wrote in to me, and it'd be good to talk about here, the okay. DM said, you know what the world needs right now? The world needs the man, the myth, the legend, Jeff, to answer the question that is on everyone's mind. WTF is Berkshire doing in Paramount? Oh, well, this is a theory, right? We've, we've had discussions of this, two different possibilities, right? So we don't know. I mean, at some point this will come out and people will know, but there's a few things to go over with Paramount that people might not realize. So... One, Buffett says stuff about it at the annual meeting, but he also said stuff about it with Becky Quick. And I think the interpretation of the Becky Quick stuff was different from different people. My interpretation was it was definitely a Buffett position from what he said. So basically she asked, you know, why are you in Paramount? And he gave all this explanation of why it's a terrible business, right? Streaming's not really a good business. Honestly, movie distribution, which he was basically saying movie distribution is like the best, you know, the old part of it. But mm -hmm. that's not even really that great a business. There's all these problems. They talked at the annual meeting about how everyone makes money except for the studios. You know, that, yeah, the talent gets their money and, and the, all that. Um, and so she said, you know, well, you tell me all the reasons why you wouldn't own it. Why do you own it? And he said, like, we'll see. So there's a few possibilities there. One is that he was throwing Todd or Ted under the bus. This is a terrible investment. You shouldn't have made it. I'm going to criticize you in public. This is unlikely for Buffett. So yeah. mm -hmm. that probably means it's a Buffett position. What are the other reasons why he might own Paramount? So 
the most likely reason why Buffett would own Paramount, if we go with the theory that it was Buffett, is uh, that its sum of the parts is worth more than it's trading for in the market, or was, and it's down since then, uh, which is true. So the issue with Paramount, and there's lots of write-ups about Paramount, people long and short it. I agree with both the longs and the shorts. They're making two different points. The The shorts are saying it's not being, you know, it's got all sorts of problems. It's not necessarily being run right. If it continues to be doing the same things that it's doing now, it's not going to generate cash flow. That's why they canceled their dividend. It's a good short, right? Um, and I agree with, like, a lot of that stuff. The longs say if you put each individual piece up for auction tomorrow, the company will sell for more than its enterprise value. Also correct. Um, so that's the problem that you run into. Paramount owns a lot of assets of which it may be the last thing that you'd be allowed to buy, right? Um, you know, so a lot of companies need those individual assets, would desperately want to have them. Um, you know, whether we're talking... I mean, there's a lot of Paramount that Amazon would want. There's a lot of Paramount that some of the other studios would want. Um, there's lots of things where they'd be banned from buying it probably. But if it was broken up and you could buy each individual piece and each piece went to the highest bidder, would it sell for a lot more than it is now? Yeah, right? So like inside Paramount, it has one of the top two pay um, cable things. It has the alternative to HBO. Uh, it has one of the top um, TV networks in the country. Uh, it has one of the last movie studios that you could buy, you know, um, which made one of the biggest uh, movies the other year and will be making, the, releasing this year, some movies that will be some of the top movies of the year. Um, so it has a lot of things going for it that way. Uh, children's programming it has a top children's programming choice. So if you can't get Disney, then your only other choice is Paramount's in, in kids programming. If you can't get HBO, your only other choice in pay TV is Paramount's property. Um, all the other networks are locked up, ABC, Fox, um, NBC, with uh, other major media things that you can't ever merge with. Paramount's the only one that's free that way. And you just go down the line. Everything is like that. So um, that would be why you would own it. Uh, like sort of like a merger arbitrage type thing that he expects it to be sold, broken up, whatever. Um, there's some issues with, you know, I, I don't know all the different things, but there's there's some of them, mm, some of them could be waiting to make a deal for some legal reasons. Uh, they have to wait a certain amount of time. Other ones could be worried about regulatory stuff. Other ones could be worried about political backlash. Paramount may not be ready to sell itself. It certainly would be better, I think, if it sold itself off um, piece by piece than if it tried to sell the entire thing. It'll get a worse price trying to sell the entire thing, though a lot of people will push for that. Um, it's harder to do to find someone who could buy the entire thing, and they will like some parts of it and not others. Um, so I'm not sure. Uh, obviously it could be sold to like private equity or something. And then they, they sell off each piece over time or something. Um, like a two-step process like that might work better for the political reasons and stuff. Cause then no one can object that it's just being sold to another owner. Um, and then you can get through each of the deals individually. I don't know if that's the, what they're going to do, but I know that it's prob that, you know, chopped up in pieces. It's seen as being worth more than it, it is selling for in the market. Even when you, like talk about streaming and stuff it doesn't have a uh one of the best streaming things that there is and it has you know but it actually has something that's a lot better than what most have 
Um, now it's done some things that have worked out well, and it's done some things that have been very stupid, and it's done you know it, and could harm it longer term, and it's doing kind of both of those things at the same time. So it's it, it is definitely if the short idea is that it's going to look a lot different in a few years than before that that might make sense. Um, but it it's very possible that he's thinking that it won't pursue that bad an idea. He talked about how negative it is to cut the dividend that way. This is a company that's very exposed to streaming war stuff, just spending too much on streaming and the risks of that. Um, I don't think that's necessarily their own doing. I think that's just a competitive response. And if everyone backs off streaming, that that will look a lot better in the future. So, um, so it's a really, really bad part of the, Industry, time, all that. This is not one of the best positioned companies, um, but it's pretty well positioned. And it's just in something where they're overspending and everyone's in a disastrous situation there. And some of the others are hidden because they have other parts of the business that are disguising it a lot. I mean, if Disney didn't have the parks and that business and stuff, um, you'd be looking at it and seeing something that looks a lot more like Paramount. So um, the other thing to keep in mind, because I know this gets overlooked all the time, Paramount for a U.S. company has a very unusual share structure situation. Normally controlled U.S. companies that use super voting shares give one vote to the non-voting shares and like 10 to the voting shares or something, right? So they don't actually have non-voting common stock. Under SEC rules, you only have to um, disclose for um, purposes of how much you own, 5% or more, when you own uh, a percentage of the uh, voting stock. So even if someone had shares that were 100 times more than yours and yours could never get more than a few percent of the votes, if you had any votes at all, under SEC rules, to make it simple, they don't say have 5% of the votes or something because that's too complicated. They say 5% of a class that has votes, which is a real problem when there's lots of shares of classes and stuff. You can sometimes have to report when you actually could never influence the company, which is, you know, stupid, but that's what the rule is to make it simple enough that way. However, if you actually have no votes, you never have to report. And that's the situation for Berkshire. So we actually don't know, um, between 13 F stuff, what Berkshire does on Paramount. We won't know because you can own, you know, you could own all of the non-voting stock and never have to say to the SEC that you own it. The only reason that we know what Berkshire owns and stuff is because Berkshire on its own is filing 13Fs because it's required to file 13Fs in general. And Paramount is uh, a 13F security. It's listed on exchange. But they're not going to report as they move up and down. So people should keep that in mind because I know that some people just assume that you'd have to report 13Ds on it or something. You don't. So assuming that it is Buffett that owns Paramount, are you surprised that this is a situation he would be interested in? No. Mm -mm. Sounds exactly like the kind of situation Buffett would be interesting in, interested in. He doesn't have ideas. He reads mm -hmm. all the papers. So you read all the papers, you know all the personalities involved, right? That was always what he's, he's for a long time in media and stuff, he's known the people involved and known what they're interested in and everything. And so he knows that these properties are worth a lot to those people, that they would rather buy them. There's lots of companies that if they could would be happy to exchange some of their stock for this or whatever. They would give up some of their properties to take these properties. Like they, if they were allowed to buy it, they see this as being more valuable to them than anything that they could do, obviously. Um, I mean, just think about it. Like 
from the perspective of, okay, what if you had to rebuild some of these things? You, mm -hmm. It's too late. You can't rebuild them. That era of TV and stuff is gone. So in today's world, how would you create stuff that would have meaning that way in terms of a brand name, in terms of a place where people would go, any of that? You can't create another TV network. You can't create another another uh, adult pay TV thing. You can't do another kids uh, TV thing. I mean, it's over. So like there's a Disney brand and there's your brand. There's a Time Warner brand and there's your brand. There, there's nothing else. The rest of it will be created by someone doing you know, YouTube and Facebook and whatever things that will be something that gets on there and gets spread that way. But there aren't any other legacy things like that. They also own some IP. Um, you know, they've obviously made a million Star Trek TV shows because they own the rights to Star Trek, both movies and, and TV. They own Mission Impossible rights. They own a bunch of other rights, and that's what they do with some of their streaming stuff. They have a deal with a, a um, an actor-turned-screenwriter who puts out a lot of Western type stuff for them, which is how they got all the Yellowstone and all those spinoffs and everything is because they have a, a production deal with him. So, you know, they all studios have things like that. And um, there's a lot of stuff that they could do. Uh, so, I mean, it, it's something that other ones would definitely be interested in. And there's a pretty big valuation gap between what Paramount's at and what some of these other companies are at. But I don't know if stock investors have a lot of appetite for seeing them buy these things. And I think politically, some people would have problems with some of it too. Um, not liking it, but, um, yeah, there, there's stuff like, would Amazon like to give up a lot of itself to own some of these things and stuff? Yeah. Would it like to buy it if it could? Yes. Uh, Amazon might not be able to because it's just so disliked by, by the public, you know, by, by politicians and everything. So it might have a problem, but some of the other ones, and, and if you pick it off piece by piece, Amazon was allowed to get MGM just because it kind of flew under the radar, I think, of the public that way. Um, Amazon was, I guess, able to do the iRobot thing, which is what you think would be more controversial because you have privacy concerns and all that. Um, so it's not impossible, but, uh, but yeah, I don't think that some of these, I think some of these would have problems swallowing the whole thing because there's just sensitive assets in there and stuff. Um, yeah so so you think amazon think wouldn't be able to but purchase the whole business then it would have to be more yeah. of a sum of the parts thing if they got anything mm -hmm. yeah but i think a sum of the parts would be worth a lot more um i'm sure there's a ton of bit i mean just even if we take the pay pay tv side of it um i'm sure that there's would be i could think of you know half a dozen that would pay a lot for it um and i mean you could I mean, the, the, yeah, there, there's just each of these things. Someone needs it. Someone needs a streamer. Someone needs a movie studio. Um, I mean, a couple of them need it. Uh, so I don't know that they would be the highest bidder, that it would be easiest for them to get it or whatever, but I'm sure that if it was split up into different pieces and sold off, there would be some serious bids for each of these pieces that we could think of. Um, and they'd be probably, the reason why it should be broken up and sold in different pieces is because there'd be different attractions to some of it, right? So like the, the value that you would get for certain streaming and, um, pay TV stuff and whatever, both, uh, kids stuff and adult stuff, I think would be a lot higher versus cash flow and stuff. Whereas I think for legacy 
network TV and stuff, it would be a lot lower if you sold it to someone like that. But I think it would be pretty high if sold to someone who wants the cash flows off of it. There are d deals you could do mainly with debt and taking the, the legacy stuff. Like I said, that might be a financial buyer or something makes more sense. And then on the other side, you have people who want the assets for their strategic value and future growth, even if they're actually not going to get great returns in terms of the cash flows. Um, so, and then you also have a movie studio thing where people might want the movie studio thing. There's some of it that has to be untangled because they're using IP across a variety of stuff. Uh, but you can do that and it just will fall off over a number of years. You'll, you know, you'll give them the rights for a while and stuff. Um, yeah. But, you know, I mean, there's major companies that don't have any streaming as good as Paramount Plus does. Um, there's major entertainment companies that, that uh, major, eh. There's companies involved in in movies, TV, et cetera, that don't own a movie studio and kind of would like to have one. Um, Paramount is very, it's the perfect size for them. Um, so, you know, like when we talk about Amazon releasing all of these movies, you know, that it's going to do 12 or 15 or whatever at these budgets and everything. Obviously, if it owned Paramount Movie Studio, Amazon's business would be a lot better, the movie business and their ability to use that for Prime and stuff. We've talked about how Amazon should have bought a movie studio um, as the way of entering that business, and they didn't, and that was a big mistake. Um, they burnt a lot more money by not having made a movie studio acquisition to start. Um, so, yeah. And, and then there's other ones who I think, you know, would like pieces of it. That's all. So I think in pieces it would have a lot of attractive buyers, but but it would take a long time to sell it all off in pieces and everything, and that may not be what they want to do. It has a controlling, um, you know, descendant. It seems like over the past couple of years, every, I don't know, three, four, five months, rumors start to circulate of Amazon getting into like the movie theater business. And I imagine... Mm -hmm. The reason we've been hearing a lot about it is because all movie theaters are obviously trading uh, much cheaper than they really have in, in you know a very long time. So, just curious to hear your thoughts. Do you think there's any substance to that? Is that something that yeah. Amazon should do? Do you think that would be yes. a good strategic fit? Would they be able to from a regulatory perspective? Like, yeah, do you think them purchasing I'm... AMC would be a great outcome for Amazon if they did that? I don't know. I have a pretty strong feeling that Amazon has considered buying both a movie studio and um, a theater chain. And both of them have their different attractions. Um, I mean, I, I don't think they need to buy a movie studio. I, I think that um, they should have bought it. I mean, I, I don't think they need to buy a, a theater chain. I do think they would have been better off buying a movie studio. Um because what happened to them is what happens to everyone. You come into town with just a lot of money to spend and and not really using a lot of your own people that you brought in. Um, and you you get fleeced on a lot of stuff, and that's what happened to them. They got some of the worst material at some of the highest prices and stuff, and, and it was bad. But they had a lot of money, and in the grand scheme of Amazon, people barely notice it that this went so badly. Um, so... Owning a movie studio, I think, makes a lot of sense. It would have been better if they played nicer with with movie theaters, released everything in theaters, and owned a studio and said we're part of the club. Um, both them and Netflix could have done that, and and they chose not to. Um, Netflix has more of a reason for choosing not to. Uh, Amazon, I don't think, has as good reasoning, and I think may abandon that eventually and and do both. Um, 
Yeah. So, I mean, they have an idea of how much it converts people to things. So we don't have that data, but I assume that it is potentially very valuable that using entertainment is a cheaper way of getting people than running advertising. So um, I think that getting people on Amazon Prime and stuff, that's why they pursue music. It's why they pursue video. Um, yeah. I mean, I do think that they over-pursue movies, though, as opposed to TV and some other things that would maybe work better for them that way. Um, they've done some bigger budget things than they probably should. They've done some more prestige things than they probably should. They're probably more smaller, cheaper, but of greater interest to the audience would have worked better. But, you know, um, but I mean, we, we've talked about that. Um, I don't have information on this, but my guess is that something like they basically rebooted Top Gear as something where they took the hosts from that, that one of the hosts had been fired and stuff and redid that. So you could kind of reboot, steal, whatever, a, a thing that had existed. And I think something like that was probably successful for them in terms of converting people to Prime and getting a lot of viewership versus the cost. I don't think that, you know, their Lord of the Rings stuff and um, they've done other things, the fantasy things that, that given how much it looks like when you look at it, how much it probably costs um, versus what they're getting out of it, it can't make sense. And certainly there are actual movies that we know that released generally. Some won some awards, but it, it can't make sense financially. What has been their most successful project? That's a good question. Um, well, I mean, it depends. Like in terms of converting people, I would say it could be things we don't know or think about. I have no idea, like I said, on that one, the um, Grand Tour thing. Don't know who it converts and what it converts. Amazon does a lot of business out of the United States. That could be a lot better than you think. Um they had a show, Marvelous Miss Maisel or whatever, you know, that that could be tapping into a group that they that is very good for buying stuff that they wouldn't otherwise have. And so they could know that that's valuable, whereas there can be other things that a lot of people watch that isn't very valuable. So it, it really depends on how they do the calculations in terms of uh, movies and stuff. They have won some awards and things, but generally it's it's not been very big in terms of the returns they've had one reason we don't like they don't break all this stuff down but amazon doesn't break it down and the industry doesn't necessarily know it but my estimate is they spend an incredible amount on marketing for anything that's been successful because because the problem is if you don't put it in theaters you have to spend a ton marketing right mm -hmm. and in fact if you go to movies you will notice that amazon and a couple other streamers but amazon is buying a huge amount of the ad inventory sure. Mm -hmm. uh, at movie theaters before the show because they need to advertise their streaming thing, which you otherwise wouldn't know about unless you're an Amazon customer or something. So you literally have to run ads as if in this spot that isn't as good as a movie trailer, but like a movie trailer mm -hmm. to attract mm -hmm. people to try to find the service. Apple TV has to do the same thing, whatever. So I think the production costs significantly underestimate how bad it is for companies that don't have the right distribution. Distribution is very important in getting people to watch these things because it, it makes it so that you, with reasonable marketing costs, you can actually make money. Amazon can do the thing they're saying about those mid-budget things, but without getting the word out to enough people, that won't be as successful. So running those in theaters is a really good idea, but uh, that's difficult to put on streaming. Um, so, you know, we'll, we'll see how that goes. But I think that there's an interest in buying something like this, probably. I mean, they've mm -hmm. got to be aware that it's not working, what they've been doing.
So, mm-hmm. um, and I think they've probably been aware of that for a really long time from little things that we've heard, um, you know, just things from people who've left or whatever and, and stories and quotes and things. There's probably an awareness of that. Um, I don't know about the new CEO. Bezos certainly seemed to have more of an awareness that what they were doing in entertainment was bad. He kept doing it. It was bad and, you know, that he had to yell at them and stuff. But um, that does, I'm not sure if that's as aware of this time. The other reason is that they bought Whole Foods and stuff. So mm-hmm. if they're willing to do a deal like that, then uh, they're probably willing to throw around a lot of money on this side of things. They need to get into some really big businesses. That's why they kind of said, okay, let's throw a lot of money at grocery. Let's throw a lot of money at entertainment. Because if you take entertainment, including not just movies, but all parts of entertainment, it is possible, I guess. The The downside, though, is obviously, while Amazon could say the total addressable market is huge, right? Or Netflix could say this or whatever. Um, you have to realize that... <laughs> No one has a lot of market share in grocery or ever really has had all that much. No one has that much of a share in entertainment, you know, when you take everything together. So I doubt these are things that you could ever dominate. So I think it's kind of a, an illusion that there's this big market that you can take. But it's it's someplace they could stick a lot of capital and stuff. So I think it's definitely something those are considering. It almost makes you wonder, like, I mean, what could be bigger than retail and Amazon Web Services from like a market or total addressable market perspective. It's like, why not just double down and focus on those two things and then just, you know, buy back your stock or whatever? Mm-hmm. Yeah. These are tests. See what happens. You know, go into them and see if you can do something to shake it up. Um, the problem with that, though, we've know, spoken a lot about this with people is when you go in and, and test businesses and see if you could shake it up it almost seems like there's a lot of inertia there to, you know, kill it and just be like, yep, this didn't work out. You know, we've, we've put so much marketing behind this. We've put our brand everywhere. It didn't work out. Kill it. We're done. Right. Businesses don't do that just because, you know, the inertia aspect or the embarrassment or, you know, worried about the public or whatever. Um, Are you ever surprised when you see stuff like that happen? Or do you think businesses should be, more willing to try and cut and move on. Seems like that doesn't happen yeah, as much. I think it's okay to try and cut, and move on. Um, Amazon has failed in a lot of things and shut it down or buried it. So you don't know it exists. They've done things in entertainment before. I mean, um, you know, IMDB for instance, and some things related to that were good sources of information and good uh, sites for doing different things. Amazon bought some stuff in that thing and it all fell apart. It's not that weird. It's happened in other things. Um, we do a podcast. Google bought something, uh, FeedBurner, to be related to podcasting and all that stuff. Basically didn't support it and things just like Amazon didn't with the other things that they bought. So there's tons of cases of people buying things thinking, oh, maybe we podcasting can be big. Let's test it out, see if it happens. And then it didn't turn into an immediate boom. They didn't support it, whatever. Both Google and Amazon do that all the time. Um, and some of it works out and some of it doesn't. Um, they also keep trying to get into things that they haven't had success with yet, but that doesn't mean that they won't. You know, Amazon's tried for a long time to basically compete with um, Home Shopping Network, QVC, that kind of stuff. They've been doing that for like decades, trying to do come up with different ideas of how to do that and everything. They've done a ton of AI stuff um, with the connected devices and things. They got devices in everybody's homes and stuff, but they don't make any money on that. So, Yeah, I don't know. I mean, 
remember when they went into fire phones the, the try getting into mm-hmm. the cellular market yeah and, and that made a lot of sense because if you look back at that time period a lot of things were open still then if they'd had a success with something that was a different idea of what to do than iphone then it would have been something that would have turned into something for them and if it doesn't work you can kill it quickly right so i mean the other thing you know there's a lot of companies that why didn't they try launching a console if you're willing to spend mm-hmm. that much money, why why not do that? You know, if you're willing to spend as much trying to do these connected devices as they did, if you're willing to buy entire Whole Foods and things, well, then why aren't you willing to try to launch a, a console or something, you know? And whether it's Google or Amazon or something, maybe your brand name travels better in that area, um, you know, than some of the others. Um, I, I'm not sure that Amazon in buying other companies has ever had much success in like changing them in a way that benefits Amazon that much. So, uh, you know, it could buy things that are already having some success and, and see what happens there. But I don't know that like if it bought any of the things we're talking about, they would really be all that different. They would just be something that would secure stuff for, for Amazon. Um, but like you said, the other ways these companies could play nicer with the content providing stuff. Um, yeah, we'll see. But I think that the landscape changed sometime last year. I think we've, it'll take a little while to lag, but I think whether it's filming permits or whatever things, we'll see that the actual number of shows in production is going to go down. And I don't think that you'll actually have as many streaming shows and things like that. I don't think competition will be as fierce between things released in movie theaters versus shows that you might see and whatever. And I just expect we'll see a lot less of that. Now, if you're a Netflix subscriber, I think they'll take lots of foreign content, localize it for you and stuff, and some of that will be disguised a little bit, and so it'll feel like there's lots of content, but I just don't think you should expect to have a couple hundred, which there were not that long ago, shows um, doing 10 episodes a season or whatever, trying to be prestigious and everything. I just don't think that that will happen, and so that will adjust people's expectations in these businesses because they all have to say, oh, by the way, we're losing lots of money in this business. So, you know, that that could make things easier. Right now, it's bad to be in any streaming business, and I think it's really hard to to buy Paramount myself um, for that reason. But it, it can be the best to buy at the time that's, you know, the worst decision-making by all your rivals and stuff if you know they're about to, it's about to get better. Do you think the narrative of the um, streaming or the, the movie window from like theaters to being able to go on streaming platforms is and the shortening of it, do you think that is largely done now? Because as you had said, when we were talking about Paramount, I mean, the marketing aspect of movies is so important through the movie theaters and through COVID mm-hmm. with shutdowns and the negative narrative to people going to movie theaters. A lot of people were talking about basically theaters are done. It's all about streaming now. Um, do you think that is sort of in the past? It sounds like most studios understand or are uh, very for theatrical releases because of the marketing that you get through there and the buzz that is generated. Yeah. Uh, but I think they knew that before. There's no way that they could do any calculations and think that wasn't true. Um, you know, I talked about the numbers.com, for instance, if people can go to their other ones that model things. Pretty quickly, they decided that unless it was HBO, and release day and date, it wasn't having an effect on attendance levels. <laughs> so that's pretty scary. It's available for free at home to millions of people, and it's not keeping anyone out of theaters. Um, you know, that's what I mean with Paramount, with um, P- 
Peacock with, you know, Peacock would say, okay, here's, um, the, you know, they, they, they own Universal and stuff. They have some horror movies that they could put out that way. Um, it wasn't having any effect that, that anyone was using in estimates of how much money things would make each, each uh, weekend. So basically the fact that some people had Peacock didn't seem to be keeping those people from going to um, theaters. Uh, HBO was a little different and in it's hard also to estimate that in the middle of COVID because there may have been people who didn't want to go to theaters and whatever. Um, the, like you said, the reason for doing it, and they know this, is say, take Super Mario Brothers. Super Mario Brothers now is um, it's probably made, I don't know, it's, it's made somewhat over a billion uh, in, in ticket receipts worldwide, 1. probably. 2. Do you have the numbers? 1.2, yeah. And... Um, so you get all that, but the important thing is just now, I don't know, probably this past weekend or something, it, it, it maybe not even then, it could even be more recent than that, it would have been available for purchase now, right? So people can buy it online, right? Now imagine at this moment, you can pull it from theater soon if you want to, it's still making money. But um, if now you said, Amazon, would you like the rights to show Super Mario Brothers on your service? How much would they give you? Right. If this didn't play in theaters, it's not just you wouldn't have the 50 percent or so of the one point two billion, you know, whatever that is, 600. Maybe there's some costs and things, but 500, 400 that you get in money just from the release to cover the production costs and, and your marketing and all that. But also that now someone would pay a lot for it because a movie like this in the era before streaming, um, the TV rights for this could go for a lot. Um, you know, uh, usually there's a cap on it but i would say someone there was a time right before streaming things where probably someone would pay mm, what's domestic box office on it right now uh domestic is 536 million yes yeah, 60 million just to be able to show it in the window um this is an original property it's the biggest movie it may be the biggest movie this year if HBO or FX or whoever could show it in 2023, um, back before streaming, uh, they might pay you $60 million just for the, the ability to show it. Um, certainly HBO was paying that much for movies that were made a lot less than Super Mario Brothers. So Netflix was too. So um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you could get that money. So it's it's not just that, and then and there's no cost associated with that, right? So all you're doing is you're giving them that rights, and you can give them those rights while people can buy the the thing for themselves. It's just that you know it, it's doing that before you put it on other things. So there's a lot of, th and then you could get similar things around the rest of the world and stuff. So there's a lot of money in the aftermarket still if you have something that's that's bigger that way. Um. So, I mean, the whole point of why you release it in a movie theater is basically you make sure that it, everyone in the world learns about it and it, who, who would be interested. And um, you cover all the costs of marketing and stuff. It's just too expensive to market a property to go direct to streaming or something. It doesn't make any sense. You know, there's just so much stuff that if this just appeared on Netflix, it would never be as big a movie as it was. Not mm -hmm. as many people would see it, which is insane when you think about it, right? That this is how it works is you could give this movie away for free on Netflix, which almost everyone in, you know, has in the U S and stuff. And uh, that would watch this movie, I should say. I mean, there's people who don't have Netflix, but they're also not in the target demo here. Um, and more people will watch it in theaters paying for it. 
then would probably watch it at home if you gave it to them for free because they wouldn't be as aware of it. You know, occasionally you have a Stranger Things or whatever that that hits and everyone becomes aware of it. But for most stuff that you just drop onto a streaming service, there won't be the level of awareness of a Top Gun Maverick or a Super Mario Brothers. You know? Mm-hmm. It's crazy. The production budget was $100 million. <laughs> Worldwide box office is 12.2 times the production budget. I mean, it's incredibly successful. Is this a uh, Illumination film in association with uh, Nintendo's one or whatever? I, it probably is, right? I think it's an Illumination title. Pretty sure from, from watching it. Um, which is uh, um, which is um, universal, you know, owns it. Um, but I can't imagine who else would have who else would have made it. Um, so if so, it's got to be their biggest one now because the minions ones and stuff didn't make quite as much as this. Yeah, Illumination Entertainment. Yeah. So um, yeah, and. This is also the second one that Nintendo has done uh, following this kind of pattern. They had a much less big movie, but it was successful enough for trying to do the IP of uh, Detective Pikachu, uh, Detective Pikachu, yeah, to, which, uh, you know, helps renew interest in Pokemon and stuff. And this will help renew interest in Super Mario World mm-hmm. and everything else that's in it, you know, Mario Kart, Donkey Kong, uh, whatever things. So. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if one day we see they decide, okay, let's try to do a Zelda movie. Let's try to do a whatever. It's not for a company like Nintendo and stuff. They don't have to take necessarily all that much risk. And um, if it hits, it can help a lot with the awareness of the property. Was there anything else that stood out to you on uh, Berkshire's 13F? Why do you think he is selling down Chevron? That's a good question. I haven't looked... At Chevron, um, to know the you know the things of Chevron versus Occidental, um, I think he likes Occidental better. I mean, I, I, I we said that last time when we talked mm-hmm. about it, and that he just can't own enough Occidental. But I don't know exactly why you would sell. Sometimes I'm not sure why he sells some of the other things that he doesn't like that much. I don't know. It's just a feeling I have that he doesn't care very strongly about Chevron. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he cares very strongly about Paramount. I don't think he cares very strongly about Activision. That's a merger arbitrage thing. So I wouldn't be surprised if he disappeared from, I, you know, it would not shock me if he buys a bunch of Occidental sometime and one day we just see Chevron is gone. Um, if he had something else to do, I think Chevron would be out of there, but. Yeah. Got it. Well, did you have a chance to listen to the Todd Combs? podcast that mm-hmm. i had emailed over to you that's pretty cool i mean he doesn't do any media and we found out why that was part of his agreement to coming over to berkshire was not to do media and it was really interesting yeah mm-hmm. uh-huh yeah i love listening to it we just we don't know too much i mean the thing that stuck out to me was how much of a financials investor he is and i think that comes okay. through so clearly on how he thinks about risk, how he thinks about assessing risk, assessing the odds of catastrophic losses. Uh, when I was listening to it, that's literally what I was saying. I was like, wow, he really is a, a financials investor because I think the best start from that perspective and then work their way through the company. It was interesting to hear how he reached out to Munger and how they talked a lot uh, before he met with Buffett over you know three or four months, and then he met with Buffett, 
and just the uh, recruitment process of Buffett, right? I'll call you on Monday and then Todd comes, comes in side on a Sunday and his wife is talking to someone and Buffett calls and is speaking to the wife because he knows, you know, you got to win over the wife to get, you know, probably Todd mm-hmm. Combs to uh, want to join Berkshire and then just like the process uh, from there. So was there anything that really struck out to you? I mean, for me, it was really interesting to hear just because quite frankly, Todd Combs doesn't do much uh, media, which he talked about. So it was cool just to get inside his mind. He listens to a lot of podcasts. Um he clarified yeah. the you know long held debate of if Buffett reads or recommended reading 500 <laughs> pages a day or 500 pages a week. He had said, "Oh God, no! I mean, it definitely more 500 pages a week." Uh, yeah. So, any thoughts or anything that stood out to you in this podcast? Yeah, 500 pages a day is pretty difficult. Yeah. Uh, we just did our Omaha trip. I read a book on the way there, a book on the way back, they're probably in that neighborhood of 500 pages, right? So that gives you an idea, a day of traveling all day, you can do 500 pages in a day. If you're doing much of anything else during the day, you're not going to get through 500 pages. That would be literally reading all day for most people <laughs> at most reading speeds, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, so do we want to say this is the... It, um, at Home The like, name of the podcast where we got it? Yeah, yeah At mm-hmm. Home Podcast. And, we'll, yeah. and I'll put the link in okay. the description. And then I have transcripts up uh, letter number 80, Good. Todd Combs. So this individual went through and, and, and pulled the transcripts or transcribed it himself. I'm not sure, but I will put the links in the description. Okay, so let's go through some of the um, notes that you have there. So the one that I really have highlighted, I have on my end a few different ones, um, but we could go through the one on the transcripts. He was talking about uh, how every business is similar it can be similar, but also different. And so really understanding that and then also conversely understanding where the risks are. So really just how he assesses businesses, he really starts, he kind of reminds me of like a debt guy starting from the bottom first and thinking through like the big risks. Um, and he was talking about how uh, thinking about uh, power laws and fractal laws and how uh, you know the less frequent something happens, the severity of it when it does happen uh goes up up by like a multitude basically saying that it's not linear and so when you double a severity generally the frequency goes down by a larger factor almost with anything um whether it's catastrophic uh, events like hurricanes or war and then he also said you know for good things as well um he talks about how he he looks to find the risks that aren't appreciated by other investors or really by the company themselves, right? Like you've talked a lot about this and especially with investing in banks, right? Does management understand the risk that they're taking? Do they, um, you know, are they comfortable with it? Do they know, uh, you know, what could be catastrophic to that bank? Um, you know, a lot of that really reminded me of how you think about investing. Yeah. So, um, that reminded me of two things. One is Alex Schroeder talking about Warren Buffett, mm-hmm. that how he invests is he starts by looking at uh, by looking at what's the catastrophic risk, what's going to, you know, can I lose money in this and everything. And only after he deals with that does he look at what the returns are and everything that possible. So he doesn't start from what are my returns and how much risk am I taking. He starts from what's the risk here and everything, and then should I eliminate it first. She talks a lot about that. Um, she talked about that in the, like, uh, where she did the, um, tab card company talk yeah. and stuff. I think she kind of explained that too. Yeah. Um, and then 
Yeah, I had read some of the Maxfield on Banks substack because we talked about uh, Maxfield on Banks. And it did this part that you're talking about here did remind me of that. He made some very good points in that substack on some um, posts that I think would be useful to people in bank investing. So Buffett's talked about this, that, you know, life tends to break you at your weakest link, right? Like it's just the weakest link in the chain that matters. And one thing is, he talked about how banks with very high capital ratios fail all the time. And this is something that I think talking to people uh, we, like doesn't get through as much. So if you think about divide, you know, you're used to seeing these uh, things about stocks or whatever, quant things, dividing things up into like quintiles, right? So let's talk quintiles. Um, if we divide up 100% into like 20%, 20%, 20%, 20%, you know, um, really it's the 20% the two 20% extremes, only about 40% of the population that we even have to worry about. So for the most part, if you're not in that worst bottom 20% in terms of capital ratios or something, what will probably kill your bank is not a lack of capital. Um, But I think the mistake people make is they think, oh, well, if I'm in that best uh, quintile, if I'm in the top 20% in terms of capital ratios, I'll be fine. But really, it's that how severe the losses will be that you're in the worst in terms of your loan losses or something, which is what they're talking you know you're talking about in terms of the the severity being so high, right? So it's really just asking like what are the things where they're taking the most risk? So like Geico, when it got into trouble, had huge underwriting leverage. It had a tremendous amount of um, premiums written to um, relative to its amount of equity. Right. So it was very exposed to that. And Geico had a very low expense ratio, meaning that its loss ratio was even more leveraged. It's complicated, but basically counterintuitive, not really complicated. But as you're more efficient, more and more of the premium that you're writing is actually going to be the loss ratio. So you're very, very exposed to the loss ratio issue there. Whereas if you actually had a worse expense ratio and we're still making money, you're less exposed to making a mistake about losses. So Geico was like a couple times more leveraged in terms of underwriting than it's normal. And then it was even a little more exposed to loss ratio variance instead of expense ratio, right? So it could have like a lot of capital. It could be a great business in all sorts of ways. But all it had to do in the 70s to run into huge problems is just make a mistake in terms of estimating losses. And if it was overly confident on that, overly optimistic, it could really get into trouble. And it's because of how severe the losses could be on that side. And you see that all the times with different things with banks. Like you could be the, have a huge capital ratio, the safest loans and whatever. But if you are taking more interest rate than 99% of the banks, you'll be the one to fail in that scenario, right? If you were taking more uh, risk in terms of housing stuff and stuff in the last crisis, you'll be the one to fail. The ones in the middle of the pack on every measure don't run into that problem. So are you against banks that specialize in one thing then, as opposed to sort of the jack of all trades? Nope, not at all. Not at all. But I mean, we're very, very concentrated. So we are highly exposed to single stock risk to an extent compared to others. Like we own a stock that um, is a single, you know, makes most of its money from one site hit by a weather event, right? Is that a mistake? Is that whatever? No, that's just, that is part of what you're doing. That's just what will happen, you know? And so, um, and it's, it could be the same thing with, you know, banks or with insurance or whatever. Focusing on one particular thing isn't necessarily bad, 
but it, you have to understand. In fact, it's how you're going to make money. And I mean, if you're in the middle of the pack, you know, I, this is a really strange idea, but I say this a lot. It's often easier to tell when you're looking at a business, banking, insurance, any kind of business, um, first, that it's not ordinary before knowing if it's extraordinarily good or extraordinarily bad. But you can look and say, this is very different. So like if we're talking about banks that failed, none of the banks that failed look like most banks, right? Uh, we can debate. Some people will say this is a great bank. Some people say this is a terrible bank. Some people will say, well, it's great in some scenarios, bad in others. But it doesn't look like the other banks. We haven't seen a bank fail that looks to me like a median bank in the United States. And so you can look, it's easy to look at Costco and say it looks nothing like a retailer. Then you can say, okay, well, is it much better, much worse, whatever? Because um, it's also easy to look at Tandy and say it looks nothing like a retailer. But maybe that's much worse. Maybe Costco is much better, you know. But you can start by seeing that. It's th Those things jump out first at you. And it's often easier for me to know that something is wildly different than the norm than to really get into, well, is that better or worse and under what scenarios, Right. Um, it's for most investments, it's not worth that much to know, know, uh, to have much of a strong opinion on something that's sort of median, right? Like, you know, like I said, let's say there are 500 publicly traded banks in the United States because, you know, counting OTC and stuff, I bet there is something like that. So really there's 300 banks, the middle 60%, right? That probably aren't that interesting. Even at, unless they're at very weird extreme prices, there's probably a population of 300 that are very much like each other and really not all that interesting. But there are other ones that are taking extreme risks on one side and not on the other that are doing something very well or whatever. So you could have one of the most efficient banks there are in terms of a non-interest expense. That would be interesting. Doesn't mean you should buy it, but it's interesting. Um, one of the lowest uh, interest costs, that would be interesting. Um, ones that have almost all loans, ones that have almost no loans, ones that have extremely short duration, extremely long duration, you know. So, um, I mean, insurance, we talked about global indemnity, I mentioned, as an interesting but strange kind of situation because they had gotten out of some businesses. They basically liquidated their portfolio and gone very short duration, which is very unusual. And um, they switched how the business was. So it was more... Um, uh, so property and casualty, but more casualty focused and more short focused, whereas most property and casualty things you're looking at would have much longer duration stuff, taking a lot more investment risk with interest rates and all that, and also would be much more exposed to like property stuff and things. And this what didn't look like that. So it's just interesting, you know. One thing that he had spoken about how he, when evaluating the companies, he really, and we talked a little bit about this, but he he starts at the edges first and he contemplates where um, or thinks about where these companies are taking their risks and if they you know, understand the serious type of risk they're taking or not. And how he was just talking about he looks for asymmetry, like as it relates to risk and, um, you know, the upside that is potentially unaccounted for. So like you said, that reminded me of of Alice Schroeder talking about, you know, the cat risk. Is there any of that um, if there is? any sort of catastrophic risk, Buffett's not interested in it. And it sounds like Todd Combs is very much the same um, from that perspective. Uh, he was talking mm -hmm. also about like Ajit Jain and how Charlie had mentioned that the brilliance of Ajit is not the premiums that he's grown and the money that he's made and so on and so forth. Uh, it's avoiding selling cheap out of the money puts is how he 
described it. He said that's mm-hmm. where the real rubber meets the road because anyone could do that. And you see it in banking all the time. You see it in finance all the time. You see when hedge funds blow up. They're essentially selling way out of the money puts. They're betting that something extreme doesn't happen. And sometimes, look, we all make mistakes, but oftentimes their risk is right there. It's very obvious. Uh, it's just that they've completely mispriced yeah. it. Yeah, we talked about that lots of times. That's um, AIG financial... Um, you know, the, the hedge fund thing inside of it, basically, um, that is, uh, right. That was the book fatal risk. That might've been what the name of the book was. Yeah. There's a couple on a, in AAG, but one of them is particularly about the financial products group or whatever it was called. Um, so that's an example of what they were doing. Um, actually one thing where Buffett kind of ran into trouble, he was right on it, but he did the index thing. And that, so if you remember, he he basically sold insurance that a set of it, yeah, yeah. And it, it, there was lots of things that were attractive about it, which probably is why he did it. It was like guaranteed money that way. It, they, it, it had to be as of the date that it ended on, as if it was European, not um, American style and stuff. And um, there was all sorts of things about it that were really attractive. But what ended up happening with that is... Um, you would have been better off in terms of probably Berkshire's credit rating, not worrying about things and all that if you hadn't done that, unfortunately. So, um, but yeah, and it's the same, you know, and it's much the same thing when we talk about uh, a lot of these businesses uh, that they try to make small amounts of money, low return on your assets with huge leverage, right? And that happens a lot with people that you, you seem like certain that you're going to make money uh, under almost all scenarios, you leverage it up and you try to pick up, you know, um, uh, pennies, right? Mm. Instead of trying to make a lot, you never, there wasn't really all that much upside. What's surprising sometimes with what happens with these banks and things we're talking about is not that they got into trouble buying, um, you know, like if this all happened, you'd think, oh, well, someone bought carnival bonds or something, right? Because like the company had been successful and now these bonds are coming out and they're yielding over 11% or whatever was happening. And, you know, oh, okay. And then COVID is worse than you expect and, and you lose money. No, they ruined themselves in like government securities and stuff. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's carnival bonds. You could have made a lot of money if things yeah. <laughs> worked out, right? Uh-huh. You were never going to make a lot of money buying at, you know. Um, a security yielding 3% or less, you know? Mm-hmm. But. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to read through just the bullet points I have on the notes that I took, uh, but subtract what we just spoke about. Uh, confirmed that Buffett said, uh, read 500 pages a day, not a week. Okay. We spoke about that. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was interesting hearing about, uh, interesting and sad that I guess the child pretended to visit his father's house to confirm a picture of Todd Combs because there just wasn't, pictures of him on the internet and the picture that they confirmed was a picture from him in high school and that uh a reporter got a child to go ask uh todd combs's dad he rang the doorbell and apparently he thought he was just like uh a neighbor or lived in the neighborhood or whatever uh so that was uh uh weird um not that wouldn't happen to us jeff we're everywhere we are everywhere we are, yeah. So next time you're reading something and you see a picture, you want to find a picture of someone or whatever, that, that's how the sausage is made. That's how the reporters are getting you that information. Dirty, 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 so, dirty. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Um, thing that was interesting was he spoke about Buffett's constant reassurance to think big. 
right? Like, hey, you spend a lot of time mm -hmm. in insurance. If you think there's something that would be a great fit for Berkshire, like think big, let me know. Let's talk about it. Um, that was pretty cool to hear. Uh, during the day, he's 100% focused on Geico, but he relaxes yeah. at nighttime by uh, thinking about <laughs> investing. And it sounds like he spends a lot of uh, uh, weekends uh, focusing on investing. And also he meets with Buffett on the weekend to talk about stocks, which we didn't know about from that breakfast that he did recently when he spoke a little bit about like their their screen that they look for um, when looking for companies. Yeah, yeah Berkshire, uh, you know, Buffett really overworks people. We've talked about that. He, you know, gets people who are willing to work extra. And so you got people working two or three jobs instead of one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Todd listens to podcasts. So there you go. Maybe he's mm -hmm. come across Focus Compounding. Uh, he used to read a book a week, uh, but now he says it's a struggle okay. to get through more than uh, 12 a year. And how if he's a couple wow. chapters in to a new book and he's not liking it, previously he would still push through and finish it. Now he just throws it aside and goes on to the next book. Yep. I just told you I threw a book out, which I never do. Do you want to tell everybody what the book was? Uh, <laughs> uh, was it called Unscripted? Unscripted, yeah. It was a Sumner Redstone, you know, Declining Years book. Yep. Um, what did I tell yeah. you when I talked about the book? So, that, I, that I would not I like it. I said you would yeah. not like it, yep. Of course, I loved it. I'm yep. like reading about and the I drama tried. and, you know, all the mistresses and yeah. all this stuff, you know, and I'm like, Jeff wouldn't like this book, but I thought it was entertaining. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but normally don't throw them away, yeah. So, yeah, a lot of people have said that it's, you know, that they, I think when they get into investing and doing all the reading, all this other material that they don't have much time to read books and mm -hmm. stuff. So how do you find time, Jeff? You said on a recent podcast that you're finishing a book every three well, days. I don't run Geico. That helps. Yeah. Not running Geico helps. Do you ever feel a sense of guilt? Like maybe I should be putting this attention towards reading 10Ks or something like that. I mean, everything you're reading is relevant. I started the prize. I'm about 100 pages uh, in. It's a great book so far. We do things in in oil and energy and come across well, ideas. Yeah. So, you know. If, if, I hadn't, if I hadn't read the prize, I'm not sure we would do the things that we do there. It, it's hard to explain. Um, do I feel guilty about it? Not exactly. I, um, Keith, who runs Bonhoeffer Fund at Willow Oak, mentioned something about this. But I think it's very important for people to understand. It is not possible in investing to just work harder and longer and get better results. In fact, in my experience, working harder and longer when you don't have ideas that work and stuff will get you worse results trying to force it. So say uh, there are no attractive net nets. I can see there are no attractive net nets or something. But I say, okay, I'm going to learn about every net net that there is. Anything that's close to being a net net, I'm going to read all about the 10Ks and read anytime it's been written up anywhere and we're going to try to get in contact with management and whatever. Uh, it's a bad idea because probably I could uncover that one of nine close to being a net nets are actually really attractive or whatever. It's possible. But if you look at it and it looks unappetizing that way, it probably is. And trying to force that isn't going to help things. Um, there's a trade-off between trying to consider things that are outside what looks attractive and you have to come in with an open mind at first 
But then just trying to say, I can fill out a portfolio at any time because I can work harder on researching this stuff will fool you about that. The actual things you're going to find are going to be pretty easy. So um, I do try to read as much as possible only things about specific companies or people sometimes that, that do those. Uh, I don't read much outside of that, I, I don't think, but you know, I read a fair amount. So sometimes when I say something, it sounds like it's more outside of that, but it's just, it's not a big percentage of the reading. Um, so like, you know, I'll read a book like The Prize, but I do try to look into it at first to make sure this isn't just a book about politics and history and stuff. There's real amount of the business stuff in that. And um, then by learning about that, you have ideas that you can apply from one business to, to the next and everything and to understand it. So I, I do think it's helpful to read books. I, I don't really read much in the way of news and stuff because you're saying like, do I feel guilty about the, whatever for instead of reading the 10 Ks? I would if I was reading the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times business section, the Financial Times, uh, you know, Barron's, Yahoo Finance, CNBC, Bloomberg, whatever. Uh, yeah, I feel like I would, this is unimportant stuff, right? Um, this is ephemeral. It's just temporary stuff that we're going to see. And um, it, it really doesn't make much of a difference. I can find the stock prices and stuff on my own. So if it was reading news stuff, I would feel that way. But reading books about industries, I feel that that is useful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I feel it's very useful. You know, it helps that you've read 20 books on bank on specific banks that succeeded, that failed, whatever, when you go in to analyze a bank or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, people asked me, I got an email recently, someone asking about banks that have failed from interest rate risk stuff, not loan things. And, you know, I mean, I'd read things before about banks that did. So I was certainly aware of it. Um because I, you know, the bank failures 50 years ago, some of them were for specifically that reason, not having anything to do with loan losses. So, no, I, I don't really feel guilty about it that way. But if it was more general interest reading and stuff, I guess I would, which a lot of people read and I don't. You know, I don't read a lot of, like, um, a lot of these popular science-type books and things like that. Or, like, how-to books or stuff like that. I mean, it's very much focused on business and business history and industry history and stuff like that. Yeah, and I don't really read books about stocks so much anymore. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, if I if there's a great one that someone recommends or whatever, I might. But I don't generally read much about actual like how uh, investing books and things like that. It really is histories of specific companies and stuff. And like the, although I threw away on scripted, I had read uh, you know his autobiography or whatever, mm -hmm. so I already knew that and one other book that covered Sumner Redstone's um, history, you know, so I knew all about Viacom and stuff. So if you read a couple books about that, mm -hmm. you know, it's helpful. I knew you would not like that book. <laughs> so one of the most frequent questions people ask me about you, and we've gone over this on the podcast, I still don't know if I have like a concrete answer is it's for somebody that doesn't use Twitter, doesn't use other social media outlets, doesn't read newspapers, doesn't watch the news, doesn't go on those other websites. How are you always so in tune with what's going on in the world and the market and stuff like that? And really just businesses in general, right? Like, is it because people email you so they'll bring up certain situations that are going on and you just kind of do more research from there? I mean, what is it? Well, I read earnings calls transcripts, right? And I read um, 
10 Qs the, or the 8Ks associated with them, you know, the earnings releases for companies that something's happening with them and I'm interested in, right? So like I, I do read about the regional banks, for instance, even though we're not going to buy a regional bank. So if I have some awareness of that, it's because of what they said in their report, in their things. Um, uh, stuff that wouldn't be important to the, you know, uh, uh, investment decisions and stuff, I really don't know much about. So, uh, yeah, I could know about the fact that there's a debt ceiling debate and whatever stuff, but then some political or Disney World and what, you know. So, like, I'll know about those things, but I'm sure there's things people could bring up about whatever, you know, someone's been canceled because they, you know, entertainment person, politician, whatever. And I would have no idea what they were talking about, right? Because it didn't involve business things at all or stuff like that. Um, so, I mean, people bring it up in different things and then I look into it to understand what they're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Like, um, you know, we were talking about uh, Alico, right? Mm -hmm. And so, like, there's m some mention of citrus screening stuff, right? And so then you go and you research that, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. um, but would I ever know about that otherwise? You know, no. So it's something that they talk about and then, like, you look up or something, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a computer. I go to Wikipedia if I need to <laughs> find things. And, like, you know, then I track down articles and things. I've sent you articles. So yeah. although I say I don't read the news, uh, if there's some feature-length article someone published about a particular bank or something, I've sent you things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, so, um, yeah, I mentioned I read the numbers uh, and other things, too. So I certainly follow um, weekly box office things. And, yeah. So within particular industries, I know enough. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When you talk about listening or reading earnings transcripts of regional banks, for example, are these companies that you're potentially interested in or is it the larger companies in that specific industry to just get an overall feel for the entire industry? I mean, do you just have a list of regional banks and you just go through A to Z listening to their transcripts to see what they're saying about it? I mean, how do you approach that? No, it's just um, I go to a page where I see all the most recent transcripts and stuff, and then I open in different tabs whatever companies are interesting to me. Um, for regional bank stuff, uh, it's basically what banks I know that have particular issues that might be interesting. So did they lose deposits? Um, uh, you know, do they have major mismatches that I know about whatever things? So... Um, you know, so I probably would read like, uh, you know, recent ones. I'm sure I read Bank of Hawaii, UMB Financial, Bank of Oklahoma, Prosperity, Frost, um, and and maybe some other ones too. Uh, you know, in the past I would have read uh, Charles Schwab, um, First Republic, uh, the other banks that failed, um, you know, because we, we knew about those things. But also ones that might acquire them or whatever. So, you know, like why was I – I mentioned First Republic – a while before it failed, we talked about what rates they were offering mm -hmm. and stuff. Why was I looking at First Republic? It just, they were in an interesting situation. And so I wanted to read about their issues of how to attract deposits and stuff when they were in the situation that they were in. So yeah, in some cases it might be like, which ones have the most marginal deposits and everything and could be losing them. How much are they paying to keep them? What are they seeing with trends in that? Um, you know, that kind of stuff. But I also follow things that I'm probably not going to buy. Um, because something interesting is happening. Like I, I, you know, airlines, I followed Hawaiian airlines cause they're in a price war situation where 
where Southwest is losing incredible amounts of money competing with them uh, with far less full planes, far lower prices, you know. Um, but if you go, you know, I, I use um, Dallas Love, they're blanketing stuff in Dallas of like uh, go to Hawaii and everything. So because of that, to try to build up a franchise from the mainland to Hawaii, obviously they're doing stuff inside Hawaii that hurts them. But I follow it just because the day that Southwest says, well, we can't take it anymore and pulls out, you know, the economics change completely for Hawaiian. But they could certainly put Hawaiian out of business if they want to. I mean, they could bleed a billion dollars without people noticing that much with an airline the size of Southwest. Some John Rockefeller stuff reading the prize yeah standard oil mm-hmm. yeah so i mean th- yeah so like learning about those kinds of things does help when you, you know th- whether we're talking about banking or oil or whatever because it helps to have a lot of history of different um things rather than a lot of just recent stuff you know i try to avoid any sort of information that has a uh short shelf life right like um I just try to focus on the information that I think will be long-term useful and then also just retain that information and connect it with other things in a way that I think will be helpful while forgetting all the other stuff. So that's why a book like Onscripted is, <laughs> you know, I don't like and whatever. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. And you, and the, sometimes the only things you remember from these books are stuff that you can um, try to relate to other things you already know. And, uh, you know, the actual specifics of whatever companies and stuff isn't something that you necessarily remember, but it was helpful in other ways. So, I mean, I've read some books about private companies and things that I found very helpful in some ways. Uh, you know, I read the, the history of the company that makes Tabasco sauce, and I thought it was very helpful in understanding some things about how that brand worked and how food businesses work and all sorts of things about that, um, which has been able to relate to specific investments that we've made. And, uh, you know, and that's more useful to me than reading a book that's like how to pick stocks or something. Yeah. Or reading about the debt ceiling or politics or all this other stuff that is kind of outside of your control to like spend time on it. Yeah. Like t- taking that, for instance, um, you know, I, I wrote up something for oil prices for an oil company and I looked at past oil prices. I've looked at them before and everything and I put up something. But basically the conclusion I came to, right, is just like okay, based on past history and everything, we could say oil prices at $70 a barrel real is not that weird. That's a, that, that's a, as close to a mean as we can get. Uh, but based on standard deviation type stuff we're talking about, uh, we would expect constantly that you take a five-year period or something, that if $70 a barrel real is what you expect, the fluctuations are going to be like $30 to $100 a barrel, right? So... That's a conclusion that I feel pretty there there may be better ways to do it, and people could convince me, but that's pretty good in terms of what I think is realistic that as you get try to cut it much more thinner than it'll could be around seventy dollars a barrel in the sense that it'll be as low as thirty as high as a hundred and bounce around between those for no reason uh, over a period of years um trying to be any more precise about it is difficult and So it's more useful to me to have read about a lot of oil companies in the past, have an idea of what oil prices were in the past, put in data to see the actual fluctuations, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. of the history of the commodity and everything to get a good idea of that than anything else. Um, A lot of 
I mean, I've read the things, you know, that you were the, um, both U.S. Um, government agencies put out stuff and there's international things that put out stuff on oil, BP puts out stuff, whatever, you know, and there's lots of others. But I mean, I've certainly read those annual outlooks for things and whatever, but you'd re- you're better off reading the prize than reading what BP thinks oil prices are going to do next year or something, you know, or like what's the consumption outlook and whatever for all of these. Um, I just think it's more useful. And then reading 10 cases of specific companies. But all I mean is like, if you can't get comfortable with that oil price, reading 15, 10 Ks about various US oil companies that are small and stuff isn't helpful because the basic problem that you have can't be solved, you know? Um, and that's what I mean, you know, for people listening to this, if you read about one bank and you can't get comfortable with say deposits or whatever for that, you probably can't get comfortable with any bank then. And so it doesn't make sense to go through a hundred banks looking for that that, you know, trying to solve that issue, um, you know, and so that's where it's useful to read these books, but then you also have to screen things somewhat to say, how realistic is this as an option of something to buy? Um, I don't know. I, I, I think, although I say read a 10 K a day and I do believe in that, I think, um, like I read 20 past 10 K uh, annual reports, not 10 Ks cause it's a different country of a, a company we actually didn't invest in because we can't get shares that we want um, through what we use because uh, it would be for managed accounts, not for the fund. Um, so it's just because the broker we use and stuff, it's difficult. But um, I read 20 past ones of that. Instead of, I could have read 20 10Ks of different companies, but I was very focused on that company and everything. And I think it's good to read the past 20 years of that. So once you're on the hunt, I think it's fine to focus in very specifically on that. And I think that's good. So I think you can hear from us talking that I paid a little more attention to energy, a little more attention to banking, a little more attention to movies, um, a little more attention to airlines, right? Like that recently, you can hear that. So that would just mean that there's things about those industries or prices of the stocks that are interesting, and then you just pursue it in a big way. Um, and it helps if years ago you read books about those things, although you wouldn't know that ahead of time. So you might have thought, I'll never read about airlines. And then that's a blind spot for you, which would be a problem. And really all three of those industries, what sort of was the tell that led you to focus your attention? It's price, right? I mean, you could, I mean, movies, Mm -hmm. cheap airlines, the cheapest, like out of, I guess, the entire stock market. We talked a little bit about that. Um, And energy as well, you think is cheap. Yeah, and it's really hard to get up to date in understanding how to frame things better than other people do if it's your first ever time looking at Mm -hmm. it, you know? I know that people write those things up, and we could do that. You know, I mentioned you can go to the numbers.com. You can look at their models. But honestly, I don't know how much faith I put in someone who has never looked at the movie industry before and now is looking at it from COVID to today and saying, how high can it recover? What are the risks of streaming? And thinking that they have a very full story of it. You're taking three years of something that has a history of, you know, 30 times that, let's say, for for movies with talking, um, and even longer for before that with silent movies. And, you know, you're if you think about it, you're judging from a clipping of the it of the last couple percent, mm-hmm. you know. And I feel that way about inflation things too. I, I think it's a not great that most everyone, including our central bankers and stuff, doesn't know that anything happened before 
World War II, you know, data starts 1946 or whatever. Um, it doesn't have awareness of different inflation things. So everyone compares it to the 70s or something in part because they don't have any other period to compare it to. Um, they don't have read, they haven't read histories of uh, inflation and stuff in other countries, other time periods, you know. Um, so uh, it's, you know, just like, it's better to have a wider uh, net in terms of having pulled in more to have seen more outliers and stuff, right? That's part of the reason of reading these books and everything and reading history, I think is useful because I am always concerned that people's sample, uh, not their sample size, but the entire population in terms of what they're taking from is too, too it's small recent. versus what's possibly there. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, not that things are totally random the way that they would be with, with geological events or hurricanes or something. But if you imagine that you took 1980s to 1990s looking at earthquake risk in California and took like the last 10 years, um, it look a lot different. And it, it's not. It's probably pretty similar. It's just that you're just clipping from that period. Uh, hurricanes, if you took the 2000 to 2010 period, you know, versus the 2010 to, to to today um it's like you'd feel very differently about what the risks are of everything mm -hmm. and so uh I, I don't think that if you want to invest in banks and stuff you want to just be like oh all i know about is the financial crisis and how close is it to that right it, it'll be very different the thing that always surprises me when you read about history is how a lot of stuff is different but like the vast majority of stuff is actually the same and different generations have a lot of the same problems that we even talk about today. And we do have a recency bias um, to certain things, right? Like when I was reading the prize, for example, yes, take, I mean, just something that was so tiny that stuck out to me, which is just completely unrelated to oil or the industry or anything like that was they talked a little bit about the woman he ended up marrying and how in college she was so passionate about a certain social issue that even today is mm -hmm. is very much the same but i feel like people today they just completely disregard uh things from the past and and talk about these topics that are being brought up today as if it's something new so that i don't know i just when i read history i'm always shocked yeah. by how things are so similar the fear-mongering is always, you know, just as much happens today as it happened in the past. And people could say, well, you have social media and there's more ways to get access to it today. And that's true. But I mean, everything that goes on today in the world where, you know, it may look like the world is ending or things aren't going to be better in the future and stuff like that. I think that has probably always happened um, throughout human civilization. So to your point about avoiding these short-term things or these things that don't have a long shelf life, I think it's it's a great for, a great framework. I mean, you look at Buffett's career, you look at Peter Lynch's career, you look at Ben Graham's career, all of these guys, any successful investor, they invested through all of these things that uh, yeah. would seem like it would be catastrophic to the market or that it's new or whatever. But really, I mean, it's just... Uh, the, it's the whole saying like history doesn't repeat but it often rhymes i mean the more i read history the more you learn like how true that actually is like nothing is new <laughs> i mean there's a playbook for pretty much everything at some point in history and life goes on you know yeah what will be useful is being able to go into the future and read a history of now instead of the newspapers of now because they're often very different 
the things that people will remember about now will be very different than what we living through it actually experienced in terms of news and things. Because what's big news at the time doesn't necessarily have a big lasting impact sometimes. And then other things do have a big lasting impact. Buffett's talked about that where it's great to go back a hundred years and actually read their newspaper yeah. to get a feel of what they actually thought was important and stuff that we've kind of forgotten about. Uh, because sometimes it didn't turn into something big from that. Right. So like if there was a war scare, we've forgotten that. Yeah. But if it turned into world war, then we think we say, Oh, how could these people be so dumb? They don't see this coming, you know? Um, so, you know, uh, after world war two, I was talking about how everyone was convinced there'd be a terrible recession and stuff didn't happen. We looking at it now don't even see that, but that was the, they thought they were going back into the great depression mm -hmm. and, um, you know, and so we'll see what happens with recession here and everything, but it's been predicted for a while. And, uh, that will be something that's in all our newspapers and stuff. And when they write the history books about it, yeah, you know, it'll just be business as usual. They have the GDP data and they won't know what yeah. we were expecting. It was a soft landing. It really happened. That's how the history books will remember it. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So let's get through the rest of my notes from this Todd Combs podcast. Um, yeah. He had said that you would be surprised uh, by how few individuals read annual reports, 10Ks and trade magazines. Something that we spoke about last week. We've talked about off pod, how there was a share figure of a company that you were interested in that was different than everybody was quoting, people were writing articles about. And that's probably because yeah. in Bloomberg, they had the share figure wrong and it was annoying you because you had uh, you knew that it was incorrect. And you were trying to figure out where the mess up was. Um, mm -hmm. yeah, couldn't. yeah, I yeah, I, I tried. I thought, oh, the computers made a mistake because it misinterpreted a share splitter or whatever. I don't know. The computer hallucinated and decided to change the share count. And everyone in the world thinks it's one thing. I, I mean, they know the correct share count now, but what I mean is they have incorrect data for EPS growth and for whatever and stuff because they're not going back and looking. Mm. But anyone even entering the data themselves knows that. You know, like I've pointed this out, if there's an error in QuickFS or whatever, we can see that. Yeah. You should be able to using accounting because like if it says the shares doubled, okay, but equity's the same, yeah. Okay, where'd it go? Yeah. <laughs> what what exactly happened there? You know what um, I mean? Like like if they did a huge acquisition or something, we should see a giant amount of goodwill appear or whatever. You know, we sh there should be explanations for why that happened. The same thing I've seen people say like, oh, the return on capital plunged or something. And I look at it and the accounting change for right of use assets changed, mm -hmm. right? So like they said, oh, they didn't have debt and stuff. And now they're carrying their leases on there in a different way and everything. And it's changing the return on capital, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, a lot of people don't read the, the reports. Mm -hmm. That is true. Uh, let's see. He used to use individuals in trade magazines as leads. So he'd be reading a trade magazine. And if mm -hmm. somebody worked at a company and was featured in it or whatever, he said he would just cold call them and talk to them about, you know, the industry or whatever. I thought that was interesting to hear just shows, um, this idea of being a reporter and, and, you know, going and tracking down information, speaking to the right people uh, to learn about a business or an industry, which a lot of people don't do. Mm -hmm. uh, he has analysts working for him. That was uh, surprising to hear. Sounds yeah. like he has a few people. I was going to say, it sounds like that's why he's saying used to do this stuff and whatever. Yeah. Is it sounds like he's less directly involved in like scuttlebutt and stuff now. He has people doing that for him. Um, Warren and Todd are 95% qualitative. I think we knew that. Um, let's see. He starts with the details in the 10K. And 
he builds on that to achieve a qualitative understanding. And he said that too many people, they start with the narrative, basically being fed information from other people, uh, other you know investors, blog posts, etc. cetera. Uh, and how he had said that, you know, it's better to start with the facts first and then build from there, really learn about the narrative as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, that's super important. And um, it's... What he said about people not reading the 10Ks or whatever, and the narrative issue is the biggest one I have with emails from people. There's very, very, very few people who talk to me who find things on their own without knowing a story behind the stock and bring it to me. So, you know, uh, I know people love the cloning of the super investors and all that kind of stuff. But basically, when people present a stock, it's usually with the narrative of whatever it is. They found it that way. They're not finding things on their own. The big difference that I see between different investors I talk to is the ones who actually turn up ideas on their own, win their own style, whatever, versus ones who don't turn up any ideas of their own ever. Whatever they're reading is stuff that's been sourced from other things. And that can be fine, but it means there's severe bias in terms of what you're getting. Mm-hmm. Um and you just have to be aware of that, right? So whatever sources you have is like infecting the entire population of your ideas. And if you happen to be coattail riding on really good investors or whatever, it might be fine or using really good, you know, message boards or or the reports that you're finding or whatever. But if you're doing it from something that's not so good, you're getting a very unusual sampling of stocks. Mm-hmm. He said that he tries not to look at the market cap before valuing a company. It's hard to do that, but I mean, if you read the 10K, they do say what the you know shares outstanding and what they have share prices and market capitalization sometimes and stuff like that. He said that he originally valued Mastercard at 30 billion when it went public for three billion. We've spoken about you know doing that. It is harder to do, but it is you should do that. That's the way you should value companies. Most people just go in Excel and say, okay, well, what's the current stock price telling me today, as opposed to the other way around. Uh, but I really just enjoyed listening to how he met with Buffett and how at one point in the meeting, Buffett was like, yeah, do you know anyone that would be great um, you know, to come work at Berkshire? And he's like, oh, yeah, I could think of a few people or whatever. And then Buffett kind of just like looked at him. He's <laughs> like, no, I mean, like, like, that's very Buffett, I feel like. Like, I don't want to ask you, but kind mm-hmm. of maybe you would be interested. Right. I want you to be interested. Um and he said, like, no rash decisions and told him, go think about it on the weekend. And then, as I said, we started talking about this. He called his home on a Sunday and was talking to his wife. Thought it was interesting hearing him talk about how he had uh, Lou Simpson's stock portfolio that Todd took over. Yeah. And he basically said, do whatever you want with it. I know some of the companies, some of them I don't. And how Todd talked about, you know, he had to do things his own way. Otherwise, he would never be able to basically you know, just do anything, right? Like, I guess it could be a lot of pressure, right? You're coming in and you're taking over uh, a portfolio. Should I do stuff that I think Buffett would be focused on um, or companies that Buffett would like? And Todd's just like, he knew he had to just basically be himself and and act independently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so, you know, obviously Buffett, uh, Lou Simpson did well and Buffett knew him well and everything, but you have to kind of make the decision that if you're running it, then you run it your own way and everything. Berkshire has been pretty good about that historically. Like we know that Buffett and Lou Simpson um, sometimes own the same stocks, you know, but it's not like there was some overlap with stocks, but it's not like that they were running things the same way or anything. They were very independent that way. It seems like the same thing here. 
they talk about ideas and things, and I'm sure he gets um, reports each month or something probably on what they're buying. There's probably some conflict of interest things that have to be cleared first, you know, so they can't. I don't even know if he mentions that in the interview, but you know, he couldn't just like buy some of an insurance company or something if he didn't. He would have known he couldn't just buy airlines, you know, when Buffett was doing that and those sorts of things. But otherwise, it, he, I think he, Buffett is very hands off with mm-hmm. them. Where most managers or CEOs or what have you are very um, much a micromanager. Buffett, I mean, time and time again, when you read about Buffett and people talk about working with him, it's basically like put the right people in place and allow him to go and fly. He doesn't really get involved in any of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, either you run it or you don't. Right? Yeah. Like there's he, Buffett doesn't believe in committees and things wouldn't believe in it for himself. So, you know, um, he does run most of the money at Berkshire for, you know, um, the investments. So for that part that he, he has complete control of that. And for that part that he gives over to them, they have complete control. That is a, you know, like in terms of what moves the needle at Berkshire, that's a better way of doing it than trying to spend some of his time worrying about what they're buying. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Any other takeaways from you, uh, for you from this podcast? Um, well, yeah, it, there's some interesting things, right. About like, uh, the history of what it was like before Berkshire. Why did he join Berkshire? Thinking about that, what did he like and not like about doing the fund? Um, I think some of that stuff was interesting to think about. Why would these people join Berkshire? Um, and some of it, like the stuff that they wouldn't have to do media things, you know, although he's had, did a little bit of that. Um, then it makes sense, right? Why they would do it. And also that, like Buffett, they'd sort of had a career already, and they kind of were thinking, okay, you know, time to the same career. People in the first few years, yeah, people in the first few years of doing a fund or something wouldn't feel that way, but they had done what they needed to do that way, and they were there are some aspects that they didn't like as much, and some that they did, and so they kind of made the switch over to doing it for Berkshire. Um, So it's interesting that way. Uh, You know, that's always the ones that I've wondered about that. There's probably a lot of people who wouldn't take the job, you know, who'd be good at it. You know, when people talk about it on a message board or something, it says if anyone would say, okay, I'll, I'll go work for you and yeah. do this. But I would think a lot of people wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You'll see on message boards be like, oh, this CEO is overpaid or he's being paid this amount of money. And it's like, actually, I don't know if he would, uh, if anyone else would even take the job for the amount that he's being paid. Yeah, I mean, the the way that they're being paid and also how much money they have to manage. I mean, they knew that, but, you know, it started small and everything, but that Berkshire's managing a ton of money. And then you're being compared to not just Buffett today, but Buffett's past record and everything. And it's much more public, whereas you used to have a more private life. That sounds like the things that he would have, uh, he underestimated maybe, mm-hmm. right? Is the part about how much initially the public interest would be. And probably he would have preferred that it not be like that. Mm-hmm. I would think a lot of people would just turn it down because they don't want any public uh, profile. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Then he, she said, "Look, I had two young kids at the time. You didn't want to be, you know, yeah. in the public." And next thing he knows, there's a bunch of reporters outside of his house and taking pictures of his house and you know putting it online and stuff. And he's like, "Yeah, things got a little crazy there for a little bit." Mm-hmm. Yeah, because he was talking about how, like, you know, the the house you could get to from the street and stuff, that it wasn't some gated thing. And, you know, most people don't feel like they would want to have to live in something that's 
gated off in that private and stuff. But if you're famous, you do. That's why people do it. Now, Buffett doesn't, but, you know. Um, but most famous people would have to live in a somewhat different situation that way because they don't want it to be that easy. Um, so, yeah. I mean, that that's the trade-off. And, I, you know, um, they, they do a lot, especially Todd, uh, does a lot of other things for Berkshire, you know, so it's been a much wider job than that, and it's probably very interesting, all the different things they do. So it's probably been an interesting experience, and it's a good thing to do um, for that reason, working with, they, they must like Berkshire and they must like Buffett and everything to do this. Um, I, I don't know that just running the money, doing it this way, that you make necessarily the most money and uh, under the arrangement that they have or that you, you know, uh, you get to be as private. So I think, I don't think it's as good a job as people might think, but I think that it, um, yeah, I think there has to be other things going on with it. And there is, I mean, now he's doing mostly other stuff, but just being involved in Berkshire and everything makes sense. Um, yeah, you didn't do it just because it's like, oh, well, now I just manage Berkshire's money, so I never have to worry about going out, raising money, whatever things. Um, yeah, I, I, like CEOs who are a public company CEO and join Berkshire kind of get a better deal than these guys in terms of what they switch from to this, you know? This is not as much of a trade-up in my mind. So why do you think they were excited or willing to go and work there? Is it just the chance to work with Buffett? Uh, yeah, I think that's a big part of it. The other thing I get, and that we've heard very little from both of them, but the other thing I think is that they were really ran hedge funds, yeah. you know? And yet they aspire to more of the Buffett-type approach in terms of... Um, they they don't things for the long term and you know whatever stuff. Uh, so I think that had some appeal to them. Uh, similar to Buffett, right? So if they ha already had a non hedge fund type vehicle, I don't know that they would do this. And if they were more normal type investors and that kind of stuff, but I think they both were interested in some longer term qualitative whatever stuff, taking those pressures off, just like Buffett was when he made the transition to investing inside Berkshire instead of, you know, doing his fund. So it sounds like they were in a pretty close, pretty close place in terms of like where Buffett was at the last years of his fund and where they were feeling. Um, yeah, I think that's probably the reason, it, you know, they, they, they would never really want to retire. Even Buffett, you know, talked about retirement, but of course never could do it. And they probably didn't either, but this is like a semi-retirement thing that they could do. Yet um, they probably work like more than they ever have. Yeah, I just think the same as Buffett. Uh, you get to a point if their performance is really good and everything, where trying to outdo yourself and everything at the size that they were after as much time as they were, and stuff. It's just like it's hard to compete with your past record. I mean, most Buffett's records gotten worse every decade. The uh, some other people, you know, who were great investors in the. 70 to 80 period or whatever, like it trailed off in the next and the next and the next. And you just raise more and more money. And, you know, so I think, yeah, I think that's part of the appeal is that it probably wasn't a fund. I don't know that there's a lot of people who would run a fund forever, right? Like there's some, you know, but we talk about, who, who do we talk about? It's like the greatest investors of all times or, or whatever we talk about here. I mean, there's some like Phil Fisher and Ben Graham. Ben Graham gave back all the money all the time. Phil Fisher had like a handful of clients, 
So they were not willing to do the asset gathering thing. Both of them completely wouldn't do it. So the other ones we talk about are Warren Buffett, Peter Lynch, uh, Joel Greenblatt. I guess we also talk about Charlie Munger, right? Who among them ran a fund for more than like 12 years or so? You know, much more than that. Um, Yeah. And so they all basically, you run it for a decade and then you're already thinking, how do I stop doing this? Why do you think that is? It's too, it's too much work. Yeah. Um, you know, like why they interview some person who wants to stop being a superhero or whatever. And they're like, why would you want to stop doing this? And they're like, I don't want to be at the gym six hours a day, every day for the rest of my life. Um, it's the same sort of thing. Yeah. Peter Lynch. I don't want to always be on the road, visiting every company, only thinking about that, whatever. Um, Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think so. Things seem to get harder for them or whatever. I also past record, like puts a lot of pressure on you. And if you've raised too much money, like we said, um, that can be a problem. The ones that like weren't, well, like I said, Ben Graham and um, Phil Fisher, like basically said, I'm not going to play that game. That's how they could say, okay, I can be in this business as long as I want to and then retire because they're saying I'm not going to be part of that. But like Peter Lynch, was the exact opposite of that open end fund and everything. Mm So his was like the most pressure and that's why you have to get out when he did, you know? Um, yeah. Also they make a bunch of money. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, people think money incentivizes you to do whatever things, but actually the incentives to grow your wealth from a hundred thousand dollars to 2 million is really big, but to grow it from, 12 million to a hundred million. Okay. It's not worth, it's not worth killing yourself over. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's definitely not worth, um, not seeing your family and, uh, not being able to sleep from the stress and whatever things probably at times. So I think that, yeah, people to get to a certain level of comfort, the incentives are huge, but once you make a bunch of money, um, then things like, your reputation and will I perform worse in the future than I have in the past and like how hard it's getting and whatever become issues. And most of the ones we mentioned start with really small amounts when they first start managing it. And then it gets big if you don't have some way of changing Mm. that. So, I mean, what do you think about why they took the job? Working with Buffett, permanent capital, not having to deal with the fundraising aspect of it. And I think they just would think it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, really, the main one was working with Buffett, I would think, would be the main reason. I mean, mm-hmm. they it's probably not money. I mean, if they ran a fund and continued to grow it and put up good returns, they would probably make more money than, I don't know how much they make from Berkshire. I'm sure it's more than enough, but I don't think money was the overriding factor. So if it's not money, then it's probably working with people that they want to work with or doing work that they think is interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because I think probably the thing that changed the most for them is they got famous sort of, Mm. you know, within the world of people who are uh, all about Berkshire and everything. And that's probably the thing they didn't Mm. want. Obviously, the thing that would have given you the most benefit is like to join Berkshire, stay for a certain amount of years, quit and do your own thing. Oh, you know, you would have raised your profile and make a lot more money and everything. So what Buffett was assessing is they're not that kind of people, Mm -hmm. right? Like when he was making the decision. Um, Yeah, when he met with Todd, I mean, he made it sound like, yeah, they talked about investing and, and, you know, stuff like that. But he made it sound like the majority of the conversation was much more about like, 
other stuff. I think Buffett was trying to assess his personality, what motivates him, what's he like, his integrity, stuff like that. I mean, I thought it was funny. His conversation with Munger, he had said that they met at 7 a.m. at the Los Angeles Country Club or whatever, and mm-hmm. they had breakfast, and then, you know, they took their breakfast away, and then it was lunchtime, and they had lunch, and then they took lunch away, and he said they met for, like, seven hours, and then towards the end, Munger was like, wait, what do you do for work again? Like, they talked about basically everything else <laughs> besides investing um, until the very end mm-hmm. of the conversation. Yeah, and Buffett had said some stuff before that, basically he just would look at the past record like if he can see your investment decisions what you did that's what he needs to know and not assessing you he doesn't need to talk to you and stuff to assess you as a money manager he knows your biography from what you bought and sold and stuff over the years so probably that's really all that he had needed to know from the money management side right then it was all about personality Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. i always wonder this why do you think buffett so when he was winding down his fund the partnership. Why do you, I mean, he had, I think what, 30 million at the time it says in the snowball. Why do you think he, in today's dollars, why do you think he, um, you know, decided to take out his portion in, in Berkshire as opposed to just winding on the fund and just managing his own money? Like, do you think it really was, he sort of bit off more than he could chew? I know they spoke about the time his, his father passed away. He was stressed from that. I mean, why not just, I mean, if you think about, the ultimate game of someone that just wants the independence. It was just, he had a ton of money, managed his own money, doing what he was doing. There's no size constraint there and just go on about his life. Uh, Buffett likes continuity and he has no master plan of any kind. So he just uses what he has to do the best he can with that. And then, you know, go with it that way. Uh, he obviously, as we talk about in the books, got like emotionally attached in a sense mm-hmm. to Berkshire Hathaway, to an actual business. For a while, he seems to want to like own a business or something, right? To have more of that kind of thing than what he was doing. So I think that's part of it. Uh, I think the other part is just that he would have had to do something. I mean, that's the part that I think is most likely, although it's the most boring explanation. He was taking... You know, as covered in the book Capital Allocation, which is very good about this time period, he was, you know, trying to minimize the inventory and stuff, liquidating some things to get cash so that he could be invested in something better. Now, he could buy a lot of bonds and stuff with that while they waited to buy an entire business. But he started to put in the stock portfolio the same stuff that he would have had in um, the partnership. So he puts into it things like American Express and Disney and, and all that. And... um I think that it just started moving in that direction by doing that, you know? So he would have had to make the conscious decision to like not um, run the business and wind it down and everything and then go and do his own thing. Um, I don't know at what point he decided that Berkshire was actually going to be a permanent vehicle for him to do stuff. I don't think that it was in the first few years. It's hard because, you know, he probably doesn't even remember now. But I I wouldn't be surprised if initially, he, if someone had said, well, what if there's a chance to sell it off in a few years or whatever? Maybe. Who knows? He, he was dealing with a problem trying to fix it, which is he needed to reallocate that capital. He had bought in below book value and everything. It had a bunch of capital that could be turned into cash. So he had to do that no matter what. He had done the same sort of thing with Dempster Mill. So I think that was just... Initially, that's all it was. 
and then it ends up that he's down to this is the only thing that he's doing, you know? Um, and so at that point, then it's like day by day, if he's looking at things to buy, he's now looking at it for Berkshire, thinking about Berkshire first. But I don't think that he ever thought in the very late 60s to early 70s that he was just going to make this his permanent vehicle and stuff. I really think it was just I need to fix the return on capital at this business. And that's all that he was doing. I think he stayed more engaged by doing that, by having this lasting public vehicle that way. I think that it's a better thing for getting rich. I mean, he certainly got a lot richer by doing this than I think he would have if he invested his own money. Even though in theory you could get really rich investing your own money after this point, I don't think he ever would have that way. Um, he was able to use float and all those kinds of things. Uh, but, yeah, I just think it kept him in the game the whole way. So I think it was just a different... Well, it, the thing he was probably wanting to do was find a somewhat lower intensity sort of way to invest for the rest of his life and stuff, you know? And the fun thing was getting a bit intense that way. So this really helped with that, you know? Um, and he uh, remember also, like, he's not willing to work for other people and stuff, you know? So it's not like he could wind up the fund and join someone running their mutual fund or being on some endowment or whatever. So he wasn't going to do that kind of thing. So, you know... Um, but I do think it was just a gradual thing with trying to fix what was wrong with Berkshire and everything, that that's why that happened. I think most of the decisions that Buffett has made has been that way, a gradual shift from one thing to the other, like he said. you know. And I think the annual meeting, they were pretty clear about that. Like, we could have been bigger in banking than insurance. It wasn't like he made this huge decision and everyone, you know, anyone who talks about Berkshire talks about the insurance thing but and wants to duplicate that, but they don't say, oh, well, he... They never talk about banking stuff, and yet, you know, it could have gone that way or it could have gone this way. I think that's the way it was for most of the stuff that they mm -hmm. did. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. I will put the link to the Todd Combs podcast and the link to these transcripts in the description below. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, uh, make sure you hit the subscribe button wherever you are listening or watching us. Leave us a rating review. And of course, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can reach out to me at andrewatfocuscompound.com. I'll thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.